Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Root Show, as Janine just said there. We come on every Friday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and also on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And sometimes we do special shows on a Sunday or, you know, whenever, but that's the Standard Time, Friday and Saturday. And, uh, you know, this is the first day of spring, so happy first day of spring, although it is snowing in parts of the East Coast where I am, but right now, we're going to get some music going right now to try to warm you up, and it's appropriate for the first guest we have on the show. I'm going to play Miles Davis from the, this is a short single version of a longer version of a, a cut from the uh, album Bitches Brew, and I'm going to play Miles Runs the Voodoo, so let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Miles Davis, a great trumpet, and that was 
from the album Bitches Brewing. That was Miles Runs the Voodoo. And that longer cut just goes on and on. But I played that because we're about to have a guest to talk about that album that came out in 1969. In the meantime, as we wait for our guest, you can call in and join the conversation here at 424 675 Again, 424 675 and besides, you know, I want to say this too because we'll be getting into this a little later on. But today is the hundredth birthday of the great Sister Rosetta Tharp, the great gospel performer of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and part of the early 70s. Just an amazing performer. I always talk about her on this show. And we'll be doing music, a musical tribute to her later on in the program, as well as having. Uh, another gospel artist on here, live on the show, but we're waiting for our first guest to come on here. But I have a petition out there, and I'll be talking about it later on, too. It's on moveon.org. It's put Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Put Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's also, you can go to the Facebook site, put Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because, frankly, she should have been one of the first inductees in there. And my guest is on the line now, so we'll get into that later. This is a part of what I'll be talking about in the second hour of the show. But I'm right now I'm honored to have on the program the author of the book, Listen to This, Miles Davis and Bitches Brew. And, I'm talk- and I, hope I, don't, I hope I don't brutalize your last name, Victor, but I have Victor Forenchen. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> You're close, Greg. It's Savornich. Savornich, Savornich. I, you said that to me yesterday, and I, as like I said, I got it. But Victor Savornich oh, I'm is used on to the that. program. It's no problem. <laughs> and I just want to thank you for writing this book. Because I, first of all, I mean, it's a really, you know, I read Miles's uh, autobiography years ago, but this, you know, this just brings up stuff that is not in the autobiography, and it just concentrates on one session, and that is the session in the album that came out of with Bitches Brew. And I want to know, first of all, Victor, what um, made you uh, decide to write this particular, uh, concentrate on this particular album? Because I didn't see a mention of why you did this in the book. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, Greg, it's really just an interesting story. Um, You know, here's Miles Davis. um, In the 1960s, in the mid-60s, he was going through uh, a drought, not creatively, of course, but financially. And, you know, he was, you know, sort of stuck up against, uh, the, you know, the rise of rock and roll at the time. And, you know, the cool, you know, enigmatic figure that Miles was was sort of feeling the pressure, you know, and by the late 60s. And as I said, you know, rock music was at its zenith and his sales were plummeting. So basically, Miles had to reinvent himself to stay on top. And he did this, interestingly enough, by putting out a double album of quite really dense, abstract, long instrumental tracks, which would be, you know, the kiss of death when you think of, uh, you know, in terms of sales. But, you know, it was an enormous success nonetheless. So I thought, you know, I think that's a pretty interesting story by sort of like, I don't know, sort of bucking the system and still being massively successful. You know, as we know, this was a huge success for him the following year when it was released. 
despite everything and despite his critics, you know, who really found that, you know, that you know, he sort of turned away from what he was originally doing, which was acoustic music. And as, you know, fans of the album know that Bitches Brew was, you know, a highly electrified album and really was a huge change in direction for him. And um, But, you know, the younger generation really flocked to it. And, you know, it's just grown a, a huge following for the last 45 years. And it's amazing, too, because, you know, I lived during that period. I remember when the change came over, because, you know, and listeners, people have listened to my show in the past, and you can join in, listeners, at 424-675-8315. I have played the traditional miles as well as the, the electric miles on this program to give both sides of it, and I'll be doing some of the traditional miles after we conclude this interview. But the thing is, at that time, it was equal to, I would say, because I lived through both periods. I don't remember the first period I'm about to say that well, but I was around at that time, was when Sam Cooke went from gospel to secular music, and people went nuts. And when Miles went from traditional jazz to what they called avant-garde back then, psychedelic jazz. They didn't know what it was. People were alarmed. The traditional folks were alarmed. They didn't know what he was doing. And you have some quotes about some folks and their critics who question what Miles is doing. And um, and I remember, say something a little bit about, and I met this guy many years ago in Denver, um, Sonny Fortune, because he's you know, yeah. a great saxophone player. But talk about what he thought about all this. You know, it's interesting with Sonny Fortune. I was I had the the chance to talk to him, and um, you know, a really nice fellow. And you know, he was brought in by Miles, and you know, Sonny was you know kind of come came from that old school tradition of jazz, you know, acoustic stuff, just like you know you were mentioning before. So when Miles brought him in, he's you know. He's like, okay, it's Miles Davis. Of course, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to pass up the the opportunity. But on the same time, you know, he's like, you know, I grew up on Coltrane and 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 you know the early Miles stuff. So coming into this was basically a shock, and you know, he was not particularly really fond of it, uh, despite his playing. Which you know, if you hear any of his stuff from the '70s with Sonny, is is smoking. But oh, yeah. on the other hand, it's you know he was just not really feeling it, surprisingly, and didn't stay in the band very long. And you know some you know something else that you mentioned earlier about sort of his you know his, sort of his you know kind of turning back from his fans and everything is something I wrote about the book was what Dylan did you know a few years before Bitches Brew to to a similar effect. Uh, you know of course going electric and sort of you know his older, you know, folk traditional fans, you know, despising it and, you know, his you know, the stories of Dylan at, you know, at Newport and, and, and all are you know, well documented as everyone on your show knows. But, you know, Miles was facing the same thing, you know, like you know, a few years later. And it was just really he had such a polarized audience at the time, much like Dylan. You know, and it's a funny thing too, because this is not the first jazz fusion album because you know, you, we mentioned John Coltrane. He was doing some stuff that was way out for a lot of folks. He went from traditional jazz to a whole different world. He was doing things at that time. Farrell Sanders, the saxophone player, was doing different things. Sun Ra, who was in a 
whole different um, at uh, uh, space world. <laughs> he was in something completely different. Ornette Coleman. There were a whole bunch of cats that were like doing things. But what set this one apart? What set Bitches Brew apart from all of the stuff that was going on prior to that? It's a good question, Greg. Um, and I think what Miles would say was that you know he really wasn't a big fan of the avant-garde movement. Um, like Ornette and, and even to a degree what Coltrane was doing by the end of his life. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with structure. You know, the stuff with Bitches Brew and, you know, the, his releases soon after were very structured, contrary to what many people felt. Um, you know, he was very, very hands-on and how everything was sort of orchestrated. I mean, they were playing in keys. A lot of that avant-garde stuff that you mentioned you know, as as many know, is, you know, very just, it's very free. Um, whereas this, of course, spontaneity is, is such a big impact with brew and everything like that, but it still had some kind of, you know, still had some kind of a structure to the music, more so than a lot of what, you know, Archie Shep and, you know, Albert Eiler and all those guys were doing prior to him, for one thing. Anyway. You know, and, uh, right. And I want you know I want to bring up one person that really um, unsung person in the history of jazz, rock and roll, soul music. You can name it, but she had a major influence on Miles and kind of set him on the course to do this album. I want you to talk a little bit about uh, Betty uh, Marbury. Yeah, Betty, uh, one of Miles's wives, um, of course, didn't last long. Only about a year. Uh, was much younger than Miles at the time. I think there was probably around a, I'm not sure exactly at the, off the top of my head, but probably about a good 20-year age difference. Um, but Betty was, you know, on top of everything that was, you know, fashion and, and just you know, that whole scene and was wild. And, you know, we, we were talking about this before, like, you know, that she was basically Madonna before Madonna and, and Rihanna before her and everything like that. And very cutting edge, and a little bit, a little avant-garde too. You could even add. Um, so Miles was really taken by her charms by by the late '60s when they met up. And my, Betty was a huge impact on Miles. Um, for starters, I mean, she introduced him to you know all all of the the young musicians at the time. You know, taking him to the clubs, see Jimi Hendrix, Sly Stone, uh, James Brown, things like that. Uh, was really into the the latest fashion scenes um, of the time. So when you saw Miles in 1969 in his attire was drastically different than what you saw, you know, in his Brooks Brothers suits and stuff. That's right. Past years, I mean, and that was such an you know Betty had such an impact on that whole that whole you know 180 that that Miles did with you know his sort of keeping in touch with the uh, younger culture. You know, just basically keeping him younger, um, keeping him in better health, at least for the time they were together, and and um, you know, just really re, you know, having mild, just having him exposed to, you know, the counterculture of the late 1960s. So yeah, it was huge. It was a he, she was a huge influence on him at the time. And what I'm going to do, Victor, for the next almost five minutes now, if you don't mind, I'm going to play a cut from Betty Davis's album. If I'm, in, you know, this is game is my middle name, and I want to play this because there's some 
listeners who have currently saying, oh, who is this Betty Marbury? Who is she? Well, I'm going to play. She became Betty Davis. And right. I'm going to play this cut because, you've, you know, some of the folks you just mentioned, like Sly Stone, some of his players are on this particular cut. Uh, Larry Graham is on bass. Uh, Greg Enrique, he's on the drums. He also produced this cut. You got the Pointer Sisters on here. You got Sylvester, members of the group that became Graham Central Station, which is an offshoot of Sly and the Family Stone. And I'm going to play Game is My Middle Name. And so you can get an idea, listeners, of who Betty Davis was and her influence on Miles. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Do me. 
is there. Give me an idea. Game is my middle name, and I have on the line right now, Victor, uh, and I'm going to brutalize it again. Uh, for, for, <laughs> Let me do it for you, Greg. Savornich. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much you do that because I – I try my best. When I listen to Betty Davis, I get a little excited there. But uh, that's Betty Davis. That's the influence of she did a uh, she really put a game on Miles in a sense because she really influenced him as far as helping to change his musical direction. Now let's talk about also um, what my you know what the folks who were on this album and what you know because all these folks are the basically the children of Miles. And just talk about folks like Wayne Shorter and the other folks that are on this album, because it's really incredible, the band that's on here. Yeah, there's an old saying that musicians say about Miles Davis is, you know, if you've played on a Miles Davis album, it's already your ticket to stardom, you know. And a lot of these guys at the time were new to jazz. They were young. I mean, look at like someone like Lenny White, who was you know, a teenager at the time, and, and a lot of these guys who really were a bit starstruck when they first saw Miles coming in, you know, and he was, you know, as people know about Miles, was such a talent scout and knew how to really pick the right players and knew, you know, he knew what to hear, you know. And so a lot of these guys were uh, were inexperienced, with the exception, of course, like Wayne Shorter and such. Um, so it really was uh, an interesting experiment in the studio with these guys. They're like, okay, here's Miles Davis. I'm nobody really right now. or just getting started. I'm in the early 20s. This guy's 43 and obviously a celebrity. So it was it was a bit of a nervous uh, vibe from what I've gotten uh, to, to know talking with the people and everything like that. Um, but, you know, obviously the, it, it all came together, and he had, you know, Miles – one of the things about Miles, he had sort of this sort of fatherly sort of attitude to a lot of his younger players and, you know, made them, he was stern, but also was, you know, very nurturing and allowed them to sort of flourish in their bands. But as soon as, you know, the album and playing with Miles took off, all these players, again, took, were, became stars in their own rights, even, to, you know, even till to today, and really started a lot of uh, the great, Fusion uh, jazz fusion bands of the 1970s, of course, John McLaughlin and Maharishi Orchestra and Weather Report with uh, Zolinol and Wayne Shorter and Return to Forever with Chick Corea and so forth and so on. So, you know, it, he, they really were able to write their own ticket after those bands. I'll tell you that, and made some great music. Yeah, great. Oh yes, they 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 did, and still produce a lot of. Talk a little bit about Joe Zolinol because he really. Um, just talk about his experience with Miles, because he, he leaves the band, and he's really just upset. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, the thing is about Miles was he was such a control freak, you know, in a good way, but sometimes could be a little questionable about, about other sort of business tactics. And I think a lot of what happened between them was in terms of the rights with Pharaoh's dance, which was the lead track on Bitches Brew. And Miles really was in a position, was like, look, uh, you know, this is my session, so it's my track. And, you know, there's been controversy about certain tracks being, you know, penned by Miles Davis, but they really weren't penned by Miles Davis. So I think there was a bit of a riff with that. And also in terms of how Miles sort of changed over his music. Um, Pharaoh's dance 
actually has uh, a lead sheet, has sheet music for it. It's, it's actually, I have, uh, have it printed in the book, which is something somewhat unusual for, for the sessions. A lot of it was very impromptu. So, you know, he brought in his lead sheet, and Miles liked the piece, and then was like, you know, didn't really like how Miles carved it up. And I think that sort of created a little bit of bad blood as well between the two. And, you know, driving home from the sessions that night, Zolinol, uh has had stated that, you know, he wanted, Miles wanted him to continue touring with him. He's like, no, man, I just want to do my own thing. So I think there was a little bit of a, a business uh, split between the two, if you know what I mean. Oh, definitely. It, it, you know, as I was reading, it reminded me, too, of uh, Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, that a lot of the tunes that were credited to Duke Ellington actually were written and produced by Billy Strayhorn. And he finally, many years later, after they both had passed, got credit for that. But initially it was all Duke Ellington on every piece of music when actually it was Billy Strayhorn that was writing the majority of it. So, you know, it's just something that continues in jazz and just music in general. Who takes the credit for what piece of music, you know, who does what. And it's just something that still goes on. Now talk yep. about also, Victor, the changeover for Miles from being in a small club to doing these amphitheaters, these outdoor concerts. Talk a little bit about that. Well, as I said before, you know, Miles, before Bitches Brew came out, was working clubs and, you know, getting paid a certain amount of money for doing club shows. Now, as any artist, once you have a major success out there, you know, your audience fan base increases and the next thing you know, you're working a lot bigger, bigger venues. And a lot of that was part of the marketing for Miles. Um, you know, the, the record company saw the sales and then started to push places like the Fillmore and these festivals like uh, Isle of Wight and stuff like that to bill Miles because he was hot, a hot act at the time. So now instead of playing, you know, half-filled, you know, smoky you know, jazz clubs, he was playing to, you know, thousands and thousands of people. So it was definitely a big turnaround for him um, and really was able to connect and was, it really helped him connect with the uh, with a younger audience because that's where the people the kid, kids were going to the Fillmore East and all that. You would know that, right, Greg? Oh, yeah, I never went to either one, but I do know of it. I definitely do. And you know, it's a funny thing um as you're saying that also talk about too um how Miles um his reaction to the audience, because his style kind of changes as far as his stage presence. It had always kind of been like that, but more so. Just talk about how he got more into the miles that everyone remembers now when he's on stage. Yeah, it's a good question, and it was a, definitely a controversy that a lot of people uh, are familiar with. Miles fans is that you know he sort of now turned his back to the audience when he played instead of just, you know, pointing the horn and, and being face front with his audience. And people are like, you know, you're turning your back to the audience. Why Why is this? And, you know, Miles was like, you know, it was because my focus isn't really to try to be an entertainer, but to really try to focus on my band. You know, my, the thing about Miles is, and this kind of goes back a little bit until, in terms of the structure stuff we spoke about with the avant-garde, was that, you know, Miles had very specific musical cues on how everything went. If you ever watch any live footage, 
he would do certain he would play certain licks that would initiate some kind of a musical change or he would nod you know point the finger at somebody okay it's your turn to, to your turn to play which was very inspired by James Brown um where you know he would have certain certain musical cues that would indicate certain shifts such as you know he would click a heel or make a dance move or a certain screech and that would that would the band would know okay it's time to change so miles was sort of picked up on that and and used his own sort of musical cues so he had to really be more in, involved with the band on stage even though people thought it was sort of a, a diss of some kind you know, anyone who's seen James Brown, I did see James Brown in person a number of times during the, that period at his peak, and he would, do, you know, you could you could see that he, you know, the band was it was so tight, he could do a split, and then Maceo and Fred Wesley would just break into a whole different riff. It was just it was just incredible to see that, and that's the same thing Miles was doing minus the splits and dancing, but just just playing the trumpet and how he would sometimes even look at someone. That was a time to change the music and all that. Now, I want to ask you, you know, the name, you know, the name of the book is Listen to This, and just say something about why you called it Listen to This and how the name of the album changed. Um, Listen to This was actually a working title for the album. Um, and Miles, who, if anyone knows Miles, is one that doesn't really – um, pay much attention to naming stuff or anything. You care less. You know, it's just about look. You name it, I don't care. I'm just gonna like here. You want, want to call it something here? Listen to this. You know, it was something sort of probably just thrown out at the studio, and then it was marked on paper. You know, and then uh, coincidentally, Betty, another speaking of her influence, uh, came up and said, "Look, you need to do something a little more edgy. Let's call it something kind of neat." So uh, one of the, the next idea was called Witch's Brew. And then Betty's like, no, I think it needs to be just a little more edgy. So what about, what about Bitch's Brew? And, you know, thus the name stuck. Very very simple and, con you know, very fabulous. And also talk about the thing that attracted me to the album and attracted a lot of people back then. I was a teenager. Is that album cover? And I think a lot of people just bought the album because of the cover and not so much of the music. And talk about that album cover itself, because it's the cover also of your book. Yep. Again, talking about Betty Davis. Um, Betty was friends with a lot of these socialites at the time, a lot of artists in the New York scene in the late 60s. And one of them was happened to be Maddie Clarewine, who was the artist for... Um, for Bitches Brew album cover, and as long as well as you know Santana, Greg Allman, many many others, you know after afterwards, um, and you know he went Miles uh, really said you know the idea was to try to get something that was a little more hip, a little more a little more of the times, and you know the story the story is a little bit a little bit it's still a little sketchy on how. It, whether or not the painting was already painted, uh, I've, I've spoken to uh, the people. The, the artist is, is not no longer with us, but the people who you know run his estate, his family and stuff. And I said, you know, did Miles pick the album, the, the art, and then decide to do it, or did Miles, um, you know, commission the work? So that's a little, still a little bit unclear. So there's two, like two camps. I'm saying, well, he picked it out and brought it there, or said, look, I'd like to pay you, and then, you know, 
well, Miles wouldn't be paying right. for anything, but you know what? You know, so there's still a little bit of etchiness on whether or not he the painting existed or not. But that was all from Betty's influence once again, knowing that he, she knew like the studio and that whole sort of that that whole art scene of the '60s, and that's kind of where it came from. Yes, it's really it's an amazing cover. If you've never, if listeners, you've never seen it. You can call in again. We're about to conclude with the interview at four two four six seven five eight three one five. And Victor, I want to ask you also the legacy. You know, we talked about it earlier, but the legacy. Why is this album still relevant in the twenty first century? You know, I was thinking a lot about this recently, and you know, it's it's amazing how many different styles and art different artists have picked up on certain elements of the music and one of them is really in hip hop and rap music um i i was doing some basic um you know internet searching on what samples came from the album it was in the troves of how many how many rap songs or hip hop songs respectively actually sampled music from from this album you know the and you know, but I think it's more of the core of that in that genre, particularly of you know, rap and hip hop is basically a rhythm dominated music. Am I wrong? And oh no, you're just you're right. You're definitely right with yeah. that. And that's what people it, don't realize. They don't there's realize no, there's that. no me- there's no singing. There's no instruments. There's no melodies. It's it's beats, and that's rhythm. And what Miles was doing in during this period was a very rhythm dominated music and i think that has a lot had a lot of impact and really laid the foundation for hip hop and rap in the in the upcoming you know the late you know years later so that was one of the definitely one of the biggest things i've noticed in terms of relevancy in the 20 you know 21st century with this stuff it is just you know it's really just an excellent you know the album is just superb obviously but this book is really brings out the Oh, just, it just brings me back to that period and made me go back and just listen to that again and and just realizing how just it sounds even listening to it after almost forty some years later it sounds fresh. That's what's so funny exactly. about it. It was it's a very it's a very fresh sounding album, you know, and sort of like the Betty White stuff we were just listening to. It just has like a funky, fresh sound. You mean the Betty Davis, not Betty White. Oh, Betty, Betty, <laughs> Betty White. I'm like listening, thinking about the Golden Girls. <laughs> yeah, the Betty Davis record, record, very fresh. And, you know, it just has, it was very experimental. And, you know, yeah, absolutely, totally agree. And Miles, you didn't think that Miles was, um, with his legacy, and I don't want to give too much about the book because you talk a lot about Miles and his later years in the book, the last number of chapters about this. I don't want to give anything away. I want to get folks to get out there and buy this book. But of the of his, the things that he did, was he really happy with Bitches Brew or was it just a continuous, like, the next thing is my best? You know, Miles was a restless soul, you know, Um if you look through, you know what, you know what he was doing on tour and stuff after Bitches Brew. I mean, the, the the pieces on Brew didn't last long. After only a two or three years, he would never play any of those songs ever again. Now that does that's not a a, a, mar, a, a knock on this particular record. That's just something he always did. You know, he never kept pieces for a long period of time. Um, if you go into the 1980s stuff, even I mean, there was a couple of concerts that I've seen where he he went into in a silent way, 
but nothing. Even his biggest stuff from the 50s and 60s, he just he was just a musician who just never looked back. So it, whether or not he was was happy with it, he, I'm sure he was happy at the time. But then the next year, he was like, okay, well, next thing's up, you know. That's right. You know, it's amazing. You know, he, he's really something. And for listeners out there who really don't know Miles's post-traditional jazz legacy, really pick up Bitches Brew, pick up Live Evil, and so much. Even even Jack Johnson, because there's some pieces in Jack Johnson that are that are very electric, very different than what it, this traditional Miles Davis stuff that came out of the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. So, Victor, I just want to thank you again for writing a great book and appearing today on the Root and Brute Show. And if anyone wants to contact you, uh, what's your, do you have a website or email, Twitter site? Um, you could, if you look up my name uh, either on Facebook, uh, is probably your best bet, um, or you could just find it on, uh, there's an author page on Amazon. Uh, so feel free to contact me either way. Um, just look up Victor Savornich or listen to this, Miles Davis and Bitches Brew. And there will be a uh, page on on Facebook with uh, contact information there. It's probably the easiest. Well, I just want to thank you, Victor, for being on today. And the name of the book is Listen to This, Miles Davis and Bitches Brew. It's on the University Press of Mississippi, a great publishing company. And I've been talking to Victor Savornich and just happy to have you on. Look to meet you in person at some point. You've written an excellent book and just... I know Miles, even though he would never say it, he'd probably be very proud that you wrote this. It means a lot to me, Greg, and it means a lot to me to be on your show. It was a, it was a lot of fun. It was very, very nice of you, and uh, thank you for the kind words. Well, thank you very much, Victor. You take care. You too now, Greg. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, and that's Victor Savornich. See, I got the name right eventually. And it was, uh, listen to this. Miles Davis and Bitches Brew, and it's on the University Press of Mississippi. Check it out if you're a Miles Davis aficionado or just someone who just wants to learn something new. And I'm going to play right now. This is from the Miles Davis Live at Fillmore East album. And this is a part of Bitches Brew. It's just a part because this, I mean, I could play this. This thing goes on forever. So I'm going to play about seven minutes of this. So let's hear this piece of Miles Davis at Live at Fillmore East on the Root and Root Show, and this is Bitches Brew. Thank <laughs> you. 
did a little bit of double dose of Wilson Pickett. That was in the midnight hour, and before that, she's looking good. And before that, we did uh, Bitches Brew live at Fillmore East with Miles Davis. And I played Wilson Pickett because it's, his birthday was yesterday on March 19th now. Those folks who listen to this on a delayed basis in Denver, and I want to say hi to everyone that listens on KUHS Denver Radio and Television, thanks to Henry Archuleta, the founder of that that station. I want to say hi to everyone out there. So you'll be hearing this Saturday, but this this was Wilson Pickett's birthday on the 19th, March 19th. But anyway, I know it can get confusing at times. But anyway, we're going to get to more music here. I'm going to play a cut. Um, my next guest is going to be gospel jazz performer Phil French. I'm going to play a cut from his CD just to get everyone warmed up to him. And I think we will do, let's see what we'll play here. This will go with, yeah, funny, we go from Miles Davis, Bitches Brew to Gospel, but that's another story. Then Wilson Pickett, too. But anyway, let's play um, What a Friend We Have in Jesus with uh, Phil French and I believe Terrence uh, Richburg uh, on vocals on this. So let's hear this on the Root and Root Show.
like that. That's a, again, oh, of course I like it because I'm playing it on the show. You know, if I didn't like it, I wouldn't play it. But no, that's very good. That's new. That's from the album Everlasting. And that's Phil French on saxophone, gospel saxophone performer. And that's what a friend we have in Jesus. I hope you enjoyed that. And Phil should be on shortly on the show because I'm going to play some more cuts from that CD. It's a great CD. And, it's, and you can tell. You didn't listen to that. I know there's some folks out there thinking, well, you know, that's not traditional gospel sound I'm used to, but it is. In many cases, and you hear the jazz in it. You hear the, and you hear some of the sounds that I played previously when I was doing uh, Miles Davis's music. So it's things always come around. Nothing changes. There's only, there's not that many chords and notes and music. So you'll hear things repeated over centuries, actually. You know, you'll just hear the music, you listen to the show enough, you'll hear songs and say, well, that sounds like that song that he played that was made in 1934, but it's, he says it's something in the 21st century, because music doesn't really change. You know, it's it's some improvements as far as technology, but the sound of music, especially when you hear it live, it doesn't change, you know. Music is, is great, you know, it's no matter what type of music it is, what you like. And we concentrate on here because as far as the genres and roots, as far as uh, gospel, blues, jazz, hip-hop, soul, some country and western, also classical music. But just to give you an idea of just the roots of music as it's expressed in this country, reggae, we get into that. You know, and then we delve into rural music because that brings music to this country and you know, so we just get into a little bit of that music just to give you a taste of music and where it comes from, how it has been formed in this country and influences from around the world. So I hope you enjoy that as I wait for my guests here on the Root and Root Show. And if you want to become a sponsor of the show, you want to be a friend of the show, a follower, because I'm getting a lot of followers, you can go to my Facebook site, Greg. G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. And go to Twitter at Unifix, U-N-I, F as in Frank, I-C-S. It's Unifix on Twitter. Also, you can go to the blogtalkradio.com site. Look for the Root and Root Show if you're interested in becoming a supporter. We're always looking for advertising. If you just want to be a follower, you know, whatever you want to do, you know, you have comments about shows, you have suggestions for shows, because a lot of the shows are based on listener suggestions. Many times it's not so much me coming up with stuff, it's just people, you know, writing me and saying, or calling me and saying, hey, you know, why don't you do this? Why don't you talk to this author? Why don't you talk to this artist? So that's what I do. I'm very open to that. And, you know, I like to really feature two, in particular, musicians as far as new musicians. We're trying to make it in the world because everyone, no matter who it is, Miles Davis, Stevie Wonder, Rihanna, Beyonce, you know, um, Nas, anyone like that, they have to start somewhere. So I believe in giving folks a start, you know, letting people hear their music because you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna make it if you're not heard. So i just, you know, just give me a, you know, give me a shout out on those various social media sites. And I'm going to play another cut as I wait for Phil here. I think we'll do. I think we'll do right now. Phil French on saxophone doing "Consider Now Eternity." So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. 
right, that was, again, gospel jazz performer, saxophonist of Phil French, and that was Consider Now Eternity. That's on the Everlasting CD. I'm still waiting for him. I'm going to have to track him down. So in the meantime, I'm going to play another cut from the CD, I Won't Let Go. Let's hear that. And this is uh, Phil French on saxophone, so let's hear that from the Everlasting CD on the Root & Root Show.
All right. And again, that was a saxophonist, uh, gospel performer, Phil French. And that also had Terrence uh, Richburg on vocals. And that was uh, I Won't Let Go. That's on the Everlasting uh, CD. And I think because Phil is in Texas, Dallas, Texas, I bet he's got the time mixed up. And he's going to call me after the show was off the air. So, But at least we played his music. That's the main thing. And I would just encourage you to check out this CD. It's a, you know, it's good. You know, if you want to hear some nice gospel music, nice jazz, a smooth, and if you're in the smooth jazz, but more than a smooth jazz CD, I would check, I would really check this out, Everlasting Phil French. And, you know, get an opportunity to listen to that. I, you know, I was hoping he would be on here this evening and, you know, I think because of the time difference that he probably just completely forgot, but that's fine. That's all right. And, and it's on Rich Escape Music. Again, Rich Escape Music. The new CD, Everlasting, is Phil French and features also Terrence uh, Richburg on some of the vocals there. So we're going to get, we're going to change um, gears here because I can always do this on a Root and Root show. You know, I can always do this. Learn to be flexible at all times. So I'm going to talk about the subject I was going to talk about anyway. And today is the centennial anniversary. She would have been 100 years old today. The great sister Rosetta Tharp, the legendary, speaking of gospel, gospel performer, the, one of the, the queen of gospel in the 30s and mid-40s, performed into the early 70s, this amazing performer, and is the one of the founders, and I say the founder of rock and roll music. And I've said that many times on the show and other shows I've done. And by the way, I want to say hi also and thank um, my dear friends at the station I used to work on, work with for over 10 years, actually 11 years there doing the gospel train for 10 years on KUVO 89.3 FM and also KUVO.org in Denver, Colorado. I'm talking about Carlos Lando and Steve Chavis who invited me on their program this morning to talk about the great Sister Rosetta Tharp on her 100th birthday. And Sister Rosetta Tharp, she's born in Cotton Plant, Arkansas on this date, April, uh, March 20th, and she... In 1938s, when they first really found out that, goodness, she is really something, she performed at Carnegie Hall. She's the first gospel performer to perform in nightclubs, performed among other places at the Cotton Club, performed with Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Cab Calloway, Louis Jordan, Lucky Millinder, and so many folks, so many folks, you know, close friends with Mahalia Jackson. You know, just everyone knew her. And But unfortunately, and she is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I say that because it's a tragedy because everyone from Chuck Berry, if you ever see Chuck Berry, you see him do the duck walk in some of the old films, he got that from Sister Rosetta Tharp. Little Richard got his sound from Sister Rosetta Tharp. Elvis Presley said he greatly admired Sister Rosetta Tharp and borrowed a lot of her style of singing, her guitar playing from her. In fact, he did a, a number of his gospel albums were based on the songs that he heard from Sister Rosetta Tharp as a kid. And he 
We'll dedicate some of the albums to Sister Rosetta Tharp. You can name folks uh, like the Beatles, you know, the Isley Brothers as far as Ernie Isley, the guitar player for the Isley Brothers, Jerry Lee Lewis. There's so many folks, and all these folks, they have in common that they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but she isn't. The only thing that's in there is like a video clip of her showing her as one of the pioneers of rock and roll, but she's not in the she's not inducted in there. And I've been working for years now to hopefully get the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it is it is a struggle because in many cases they believe that music started in 1990, so anything that happened prior to that they don't even want to deal with anymore. But I'm hoping that they, one day they will put her in there. I've got a petition of over 300 names that you can go to. MoveOn.org or go to the Facebook site, put Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and sign a petition and just demand that, you know, that she be put in there. She is one of the originators of rock and roll. And I'm going to play some cuts from, play a couple of her songs now so you can get an idea. For those of you who may be listening to this show for the first time, I don't really know or miss the shows where I play Sister Rosetta Tharp and gotten on my rant about her being in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm going to play some songs of her so you can understand what I'm talking about and you can hear exactly that sound, that rock and roll sound. So these are from the 40s and early 50s. I'm going to start off with Rock Me. So let's hear that by Sister Rosetta Tharp on the Root and Root Show. Yeah. 
crowd of people went out in the desert to listen to what the good Lord said. All day long they heard the good Lord's word, then they got hungry and had to be fed. On only two little fishes and five loaves of bread. The Lord's disciples began to get worried, and each of them had to scratch his head. But what could they do? Cause each one knew there was a big crowd that had to be fed. With only two little fishes and five loaves of bread, the good Lord stood up and told his disciples to bring him the loaves of bread instead. Bring the fishes by and let him try a little idea he had in his head. About those two little fishes and five loaves. Gospel performers playing the 
walking around doing a duck walk and walking and walking around playing the guitar with her teeth. That's she was amazing. She got married uh, at the baseball park in D.C. Griffith Stadium, I think, in 1951. Got married there. They had a sellout crowd. And after she got married, she did a like a two-hour performance at second base. You know, of other uh, gospel acts. There it was just amazing. There is a. I don't have the album, but there's an album of that whole performance when she got married. I'm trying to find that thing, but it is something. But Sister Rosetta Tharp, if you want to join the movement, go to the moveon.org site. Look for Put Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Also go to the Facebook site, Put Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's overdue. She needs to be in there. Not just a clip or a video clip that you see when you walk in the museum, but an actual induction. Enshrinement because she really needs to be inducted in there. She is just a legend in music, gospel music, rock and roll, jazz, also blues, you name it. She's one of the pioneers and she should be in there. And one of the folks that signed the petition is Bonnie Raitt because Bonnie Raitt was a admirer of hers. And you hear some of her licks, uh, Sister Rosetta Starp's licks, when you listen to Bonnie Raitt. And she says definitely she should be in the Hall of Fame. And for some of you who don't you know? You should go to YouTube. If you don't know that much about it still. Go to YouTube. Look at her performances. There was a documentary three years ago about Sister Rosetta Tharp on PBS. You can find that on YouTube. And there's a book by Gail Weld, W A L D, professor in D.C. at the American University, called Sister Rosetta Tharp. And you should you know, shout, Sister, shout. So check that out too. Get a a more definitive view and see why I'm saying that she should be put, as other people have said, including Bonnie Raitt and folks from everywhere, from Japan, Ireland, Australia, this country, everywhere have signed a petition. So why don't you become a signature signer to of that petition? But we're going to get to more music now. And since our second guest didn't show a Phil French, I'm going to Get some more music on here. We're gonna. I'm gonna go back to Miles Davis, and I'm gonna do. I'm gonna play Miles. Um, first, let's do Miles, uh, the traditional Miles Davis jazz. Uh, Miles Davis and John Coltrane. Since I mentioned second base, let's do two bass hits. So let's hear that on the Root and Root show. Miles Davis on trumpet, John Coltrane on saxophone. <laughs>
Miles Davis again, and that was uh, Mr. Pastoris that went out to uh, the bassist, uh, the late great bassist, Jaco Pastoris, and before that we did Miles Davis, along with John Coltrane and two bass hit. And we have a caller on the line. I think this may be my guest. I'm going to see here. Is this uh, Phil French? Yes, sir, it is, sir. All right. I was uh, hoping you'd call here eventually. We've been playing a couple of your cuts. And oh, listeners, um, 
I got about uh, seven minutes to go, so I'll try to get this real quickly in here. But this is Phil French, who I was playing earlier, the gospel saxophone artist. Great music. His newest CD is Everlasting. And I just want to thank you, even in this brief time, for being on the show, Phil. And, oh, you know, and Phil, is, and Phil has, like, been, I mean, he's been on every, you can name everyone from the Winans. Um just well, name some of the folks you've been with besides the Winans, uh, Vicky uh, Winans. Um, just name all Yolanda Adams. Name all the folks you've played with. Uh, Gene Carr, Brian McKnight, man. Uh, uh, come on, man. There's, there's so many. Uh, Grover Washington, Phyllis Hyman. Uh, we, the guy's amazing. We've been oh, he, 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 this, this guy is really blessed. And you heard his talent earlier. I mean, the guy is something... And you know, Phil, you are you in the are you at the party's home right now? Because I hear music in the background. Actually, I'm sorry. I apologize. The reason I was late, I was actually I'm about to go on stage in probably like another 25 minutes. I, I'm just oh man, I'm walking out though. Give me one. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you, man. I'm good though. All right. Yeah. Well, we got you know. Yeah. What I want you to do, Phil, because I really promote your music, is just to tell folks if they want to pick up your CDs, if they want to talk to you online, where they can go for that. Oh, man, I, I am definitely on Facebook. Uh, and we, 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 we're blessed to be able to be on Twitter. Uh, I have a website, philfrench.com, and uh, we, we, we're there. Uh, we also are on uh, iTunes. We're on Google Play, CD Baby, Amazon, you name it, we're there. And, and the man, I mean, Phil is really something. And I'm going to have to get you back on here sometime. We can have a longer interview. But I'm going to conclude the show today with uh, your cut, uh, In My Heart. And just set that up. Oh, yes, man. That's the, that's one of the groovingest tunes on the project, man. You picked a good tune to close out with, man. Well, In I'm my just heart, happy man. to do it, we, we, you know, you know, this, that's one of those tunes when you, you, when you ever drive down the road to stop bopping your head real hard. Oh yeah, it's one of those tunes, well, we man. Go- and it's God is definitely in our hearts, man. So we're we're blessed to be able to be able to to to, to declare that He's in our hearts and and that we're we're serving Him the Spirit and truth, and He's blessing us in all realms, in the secular realm and gospel realm. Oh well, that's really great, Phil. You're just you know a great performer and. We're going to get you on here sometime to talk longer, so you you get to work now. So just thanks for calling oh, in, that, Bill. Yeah, my pleasure, man, and I do apologize, man. But yeah, we, oh, no problem. We, we, we're running a little late with this traffic and this sound check, man. But, yeah, we, we're thankful, man. We, anytime you want me, man, I'm here for you, man. All right, buddy. We'll get you back on here. You take care. Hey, God bless you, man. God bless you. Take care. And, again, that was uh, Phil French, and I'm going to conclude the show today. With the cut, I was about to say, in my heart. But this is Greg Rashid again with the Root and Root Show. Going love and going peace. We'll see you tomorrow with another edition of the Root and Root Show. And let's leave you with Phil French, in my heart. Let's get our heads bopping. <laughs>